I'd like to begin tonight with a short poem. The title is Adrift. Everything is beautiful. And I am so sad. This is how the heart makes a duet of wonder and grief. The light spraying through the lace of the fern is as delicate as the fibers of memory forming their web around the knot in my throat. The breeze makes the birds move from branch to branch as this ache makes me look for those I've lost in the next room, in the next song, in the laugh of the next stranger. In the very center, under it all, what we have that no one can take away and all that we've lost face each other. It is there that I'm adrift, feeling punctured by a holiness that exists inside everything. I am so sad, and everything is beautiful. It is there that I am adrift, feeling punctured by a holiness that exists inside everything. This poem suggests the possibility of seeing and experiencing beauty amidst life's uncertain conditions, and in this case, even loss. Beauty, a duet, it is described, of the heart's creation, is formed when grief is met with wonder. And more universally, anywhere paradox can be integrated and seen as a whole. So there's an invitation, as I understand this poem. We have access to something that is available when everything is taken away from us. In that emptiness, to use a Buddhist term, in that emptiness we are adrift, as the poet writes, untethered, free, and, as the poet writes, punctured by a holiness that exists inside everything. Like many good poems and good poets here, extracted from the mundane is the extraordinary.
This is what I think the Buddha did. No question in my mind. Person just like us. Somewhere before midlife, relative how the average age that we live today, discovered something extraordinary in the midst of his life. And what he did ultimately for us and what he documented and what he taught pointed to suffering just as it did many, many, many gateways to freedom, joy, and happiness. I see this talk as being about different ways that we might recognize dharma in our own experience. We use this word dharma all the time around here, and I've been using it for many, many years. Thinking I knew what it meant. And after my uh, three-year teacher training in Los Angeles, I signed up for another two-year training, which was in many ways very, very similar. Though there was a significant difference in that while I had both a Tibetan and Zen teacher, I was in a cohort, an interfaith cohort, uh, with many folks schooled in the Christian tradition. And they were often referring to God and many other um, archetypes and passages. And we were, uh, it was a very intensive program. We were confronted by our uh, teachers to challenge one another's use of language. And so it's not comfortable for me to uh, do this, uh, and it's something I'm learning how to to do. And so I was in a position to, and of course I'm trying to, you know, uh, manage for a respect of other traditions and views that are not my own. But I did have to say, at a certain point, when you use that word, I don't I don't understand what it means. And it was very genuine. I just I actually don't know what you're pointing toward. Um, and it went over fine. <laughs> and I have good relationships with all those folks, uh, still working with them. And in my second unit, I'm doing four units. It's a, one unit is required, and I found it beneficial. So now I'm moving into my fourth unit, and I'm with the same, the same group of people. And in my second unit, I was preparing uh, to make a presentation to the group. And it dawned on me that maybe nobody knew what I meant every time I said the word Dharma. <laughs> so I've taken on these little projects over the past year, year and a half, of taking words that I think that I know, and that I do on some level, some level, know, and 
investigating them as if they were a foreign concept. And part of most of tonight's talk is really a result of one of those one of those explorations. I want to share with you next the first stanza, the opening phrase of the Mindfulness Sutta from the Majjhima Nikaya, the Satipatthana Sutta, where uh, much of the teachings that we're sharing with you come from. This is a direct path for the purification of beings for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of dukkha and discontent, for acquiring the true method, for the realization of nirvana, or in the Pali, Nibbana. Some of you have heard me build whole talks around this one phrase. This is nothing less than bold. <laughs> this is a radical statement. So let me be really clear about the Buddha's bias. <laughs> this is a path that will change and maybe end suffering. For the disappearance of dukkha and discontent. Sign me up. <laughs> so what is being conveyed in this? other than good marketing. <laughs> Clearly something happens on this path. Clearly something happens. So how do we understand this? How can we begin to relate to this experientially? So much theory, right? You've heard us talking all week and you go to your local Dharma Center if there's one near you and you know we're always up here giving you these maps and models and lists and ideas and but at some point we want to dig down in the body and our own psyche and mind and have a way of tracking the possibility of being more free We really want to learn how to do this. You've already paid and there's no refund, so you might as well <laughs> might as well get something out of it. So there's two ways that I think about this. One, and I'll use the language that we get from the Buddha, there's the alleviation of dukkha distress and discontent. Dukkha, again, the Pali, first noble truth, 
distress or suffering or discontent or unsatisfactoriness. I'm okay with stress and anxiety. I think even longing is a form of dukkha. Disquietude, the angst or busyness of mind. Okay, so the alleviation of that. This tells us that something goes away. So that's what I want to emphasize. Something goes away. Okay? And number two, or the other thing that happens, the presence of wisdom and knowledge, the presence of wisdom and knowledge, referred to as great. Referred to as great. So the Buddha, and also other people I've met along this path, have a very unique kind of confidence. So if the alleviation of dukkha, distress, and discontent infer that something goes away, the presence of wisdom and knowledge suggests that something is attained. So this is a good starting point for us, I think, to begin to understand the possibilities. And I'm inviting you to reflect in the time that we have left together. Can you feel that? Is there a felt sense? This really is not an academic tradition. What does that feel like? Something goes away and something is attained. These two aspects, something going away and something being attained, work together. They're, they're, they're part of a mutual unfolding. The attainment of insight, knowing ourselves, knowing our habits, the attainment of insight helps us avoid the conditions of dukkha. And in the absence of dukkha, the mind is naturally prone to further insight. And I want to pause here and say that I do think this practice in the direction that it's going, in the fruit that it bears, is all natural. I really believe that. If we were trying to craft or build or fabricate something, I would say, let's hang it up and just go home. Let's go do something else. Because that's going to be really hard. My own felt sense of this is that I am dropping down into something that exists, and yet is so often just beyond my reach. But when I have the good fortune and the conditions come together to have this both alleviation and felt sense of something having been cultivated, it really does feel like, a, like a, oh, I fell into this sweet spot. And the heart is open, and the mind is a little bit more clear. And there's this sense of, wow, this is 
this has been here, or this is here, and I'm not. And I get a taste of it. And I find that very, very, very comforting. So to say it as simply as possible, this path moves in a positive direction. And we wouldn't be up here if we didn't believe that. And if some of you share somewhat what, what I have inside myself, you might now or in the past or in the future hear this kind of radical, bold confidence, and you might have some doubt. We might find this rather daunting rather than encouraging. We might use it as another reason to beat ourselves up. It's not possible for me. Glad that's happening for you, bro, but... (laughs) (laughs) My shoulder hurts. I'm thinking about my divorce. I'm worried about the future. I usually take a dump three times a day. (laughs) (laughs) Haven't shit in a week. You know, whatever it is. But it's not feeling like nirvana. (laughs) So these teachings might trigger something that's different from their intention. And they did for me. They might trigger the mind of comparison. The longer we practice, and the more retreats we sit, we might find ourselves with even more occasions to highlight our limitations. This is not true of all cultures, by the way. We might find more occasions to highlight the things we are not doing, the things we wanted to achieve achieve, but have yet to achieve. At a certain point, the list of insights, possible achievements, become a list of achievements that we have not attained. And so we get harder on ourselves. In my experience, doubt does not go away very easily. Doubt in myself doesn't go away very easily. At the beginning, doubt in the Dharma didn't go away easily. I went through three lineages. Before I found one that I could call a home.
and getting beyond doubt of my teachers didn't go away easily. Well before Dharma, after a painful several years as a teenager, trying to figure out why I wasn't very successful in sports and finding a world that made sense through reading books and literature and people that were safe and I loved and English teachers. I decided to go to school. I decided to to move away from sports and <clears throat> got interested in playing the guitar and wanted to read more and write and went off to study English and I really just wanted to write and maybe maybe teach teach literature and it was the first time I felt like I had something in my bones like something made sense reading books made sense gave me joy pleasure I didn't know it but it was my first hit of deep dharma I felt that there were people out there uh, writing whose own awareness was so sharp that it could convey the subtlety of life and the beauty of life and the hardship of life. Reading could actually bring me closer to life, closer to the truth in a sense. And I just wanted more of that experience, and I wanted to create those experiences for other people. But I would never be good enough. I would never be like those people who inspired me. I would never be able to make that into a job, career. I'd never be able to take care of myself if I followed my heart. I had a, had a high school teacher who pushed me into an MFA program and I didn't go and had a writing teacher in my undergrad. I did do an undergrad in creative writing. Had a teacher there who pushed me into an MFA and I didn't go. All for the same reason. The doubt never went far enough away. Then came a long path of uh, suffering through jobs I didn't like. <clears throat> Just trying to make some money to get by. And that's when I found the Dharma, my early 20s. And it was extremely hard and extremely slow and I wasn't seeing much change, very little change. Some of you know this, this story. It's actually pretty amazing 
that I continue to practice. It really, really is. Change was so slow. Comprehension was so slow. Not much, uh, here I go with my bad marketing again, but <laughs> not much happened in the first 10 years. possibility that I shared with you at the beginning of this talk kept me practicing. The beginning of the Satipatthana Sutta kept me practicing. And the only thing I can claim in those first 10 years, and I can still recall them, were moments of real quiet and calm. There were these little pockets when the body was relaxed, the inner and outer environment were calm, and there was a stillness. That was my first hit of Dharma. And I wanted more of that. So that's what I was going for. So it's easy to doubt the Dharma. It's easy to doubt ourself. And yet here we are, investing all this time and energy and Probably many of you want to be a good yogi and get somewhere along the way and trying hard, lots of effort. Some of you might even fake it every now and again like I did. Have you ever walked real so slow so if anyone was watching they'd think you're concentrated? <laughs> <laughs> At least when the teachers are walking by. <laughs> Definitely when the teachers are walking by. Have you ever noticed how the teachers are always right there when you're doing something you're not supposed to do? How do they do that? <laughs> I used to sit beyond the bell. The bell would ring. I'd be racked with pain. Dying to walk. I just want to get out. Just get a cup of tea. Anything. Just keep sitting. So the people thought I was really good at what I was doing. <laughs> you know. I used to wait till everybody left the Dharma Hall. You know. And I'd just be like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know.
we might find ourselves in this practice that is intended to compassionately investigate the self, that we're actually further investing in creation and maintenance of the self. So subtle, so subtle. And then we have to go to these meditation confessions. We have to sit in a group or one-on-one. We have to we have to tell the teacher what we're doing, how, how it's going. I told you a little bit when I spoke earlier in the retreat about my own uh, need to be seen coming out of a, a sense of unworthiness. A lot of my interview experience at the beginning uh, was just me trying to avoid sharing any difficulty, which is, of course, as as I was explaining to you before, was my pattern in in daily life, too. Interviews were so so stressful for me, so so difficult. I've done some retreats where there are long stretches without interviews, and I've always preferred those better, partly because I really like the quiet, and I, I really do enjoy not talking. I had this one interview at IMS, uh, I was sitting the uh, annual uh, New Year's retreat for a couple years in a row, maybe maybe three, four years in a row. And I remember this one interview, it was a group interview and practice meeting. And I went last, uh, everyone else went and came to me and I figured what I said, but I reported something about my experience and the the teacher looked at me with kind of a quizzical but very engaged look and he said, wow, you just gave a Dharma talk. And I said, hmm, that's interesting. And so the really, the insecure part of me, uh, my, my ego was relieved in a sense. I felt safe again. I felt seen. I felt validated. And another part of me struggling to learn how to be authentic was not given a chance to change because I was unable to report where I was stuck in the practice. One of the things that I'm learning is that being real, uh, being honest, frees me. And that doesn't always mean communicating out loud to others. It does in an interview. But at the very least to yourself. For me, the Dharma, for me, emotional and psychological growth, connection, boils down to honesty. This is all about honesty. And for me, that's the gateway to authenticity. That's the path. So yeah, when I heard right speech, I thought that meant when you're talking to the teachers to tell them you're doing the practice right. (laughs) I didn't know until a nun in a very non-threatening way explained to me that it was the teacher's job to tell me if I was doing the practice correctly, not the other way around. (laughs) 
So the Buddha taught a way that we could confront reality honestly, particularly its hardships, and transform them into understanding and well-being. From a different sutta, vision arose, insight arose, discernment arose, knowledge arose, illumination arose within me with regard to things never heard before. This noble truth of the way of practice leading to the cessation of stress is to be developed. This is a reference to the Noble Eightfold Path and the cultivation of sila or morality or ethical conduct, samadhi, the development of meditation, and panya, the development of insight and wisdom. The cessation of stress is to be developed. We can't fake freedom. So there are some ways that I think we can see signs of the Dharma in our own lives and in the lives of others. And I want to share a few of them with you and I want to say that and this is not a list that we get from the teachings. I'm not in this part of the sharing with you, taking from the suttas. These are just observations and personal reflections, uh, some of them distilled from conversations with other practitioners. It's a list of things that might happen. That's all. It's not a checklist that things, of things that need to happen. It's not things that need to happen before the end of the day, or the end of the week, or before the end of your life. But there are things that might happen, and there are things to learn how to pay attention to when they do happen. Because these are things that are happening for people who practice meditation. Number one, resilience. We start to become resilient. In really plain language, we learn how to move on. It doesn't mean that we do this without pain. It just means that we can do it. Remember, pain and dukkha are two different things. We're not actually trying to get rid of pain. This dukkha is our is what arises out of our response to pain. We get better at this because we begin to understand impermanence in Pali Anicca. There really are things we cannot control. And so we practice integrating this. And there is something cognitive about this. We need to, we need to see it, experience it experientially but we let it register up here, wherever the brain is, and we apply that when we need it. 
relationships change. One of the hardest things for me to get through, I get it intellectually, duh. <laughs> so much of the Dharma is like that. Durr. <laughs> Let's move on to the next topic because I already know this one. It's like, <laughs> but do you know it? Relationship changes were devastating for me because they always brought up the threat of abandonment or were being experienced as abandonment, right? I'm very comfortable saying that it's easier. It's much, much easier. And just the basic in inevitable movement from pleasant and unpleasant. I talked about this earlier in the week. Right? I'm guessing a few of you are still struggling when the pleasant experiences go away. Just maybe. <laughs> right? All those moments are an inability to fully integrate the truth of impermanence. Something else that might happen, we become more attuned, both inwardly and simultaneously aware of our surroundings. We're actually more available to the environment, to other people, to the group we're a part of. We're more connected, which is interesting because it's a very solo journey, isn't it? It's very much about what's going on inside you, and it should be. But there's a way to do that and to stay engaged externally and maybe even more attuned to the outer environment, to the people sitting next to you. So self-consciousness, this, this inner and outer mindfulness has something to do with self-consciousness self self not prohibiting us from noticing others' needs doesn't prohibit us from listening well. We're actually less self-absorbed. Mindfulness is not that kind of self-absorption. A third example, you might find that you're becoming more decisive. Or at least sometimes, maybe around certain situations where you would have never made a decision. Just stuck in confusion. Confusion is just when there are uh, conflicting ideas or conflicting emotions and you can't land. One, one doesn't seem more right than the other. And many of us can get bound in the middle of these conflicting ideas for months and years. But there are times when the mind doesn't waver. And the mind is able to commit. One has begun to doubt 
that doubt is a real indication of capacity. Risk becomes associated with things that are uncomfortable rather than things we can't do. And we get better at being uncomfortable through this practice. And that opens us to more opportunities in our life. Making change, moving toward what we want, often is not comfortable. So we can take risks. Risks can be taken not because we always get the outcome we want, but in my experience for two reasons. One, we are starting to trust that we can emotionally tolerate not getting what we want. And we can be okay when things don't go our way. If you're trying to avoid that, no risk. No moving into, fill in the blank, wherever you see yourself going. And another reason we can take risks. We understand that getting what we want or need is in part a matter of percentage. If we never take risks, we never get what we want. If we sometimes take risks, we sometimes get what we want. So we will need to fail, so there's a cliche here, we will need to fail in order to succeed. Are you okay with that? My hope for you is that you're okay with that, that you can become okay with that. Please fail. <laughs> I'm skipping some of these, so I might get the numbers wrong. I think I'm at number four. You might find that some of your actions are proportionate to the situation. <laughs> that you begin to understand the degree of a problem. That you are accurately gauging the level of severity. This is when our response to a situation is proportionate to the real threat rather than the perceived threat. Might sound a little bit clinical, but this also comes through Dharma practice. So for example, I've had to learn that if someone wants to be close to me, 
They are not necessarily trying to control me. Or take everything from me and give nothing in return. I'm discovering something that continues to blow my mind. Sometimes they might just want to be close to me because they like being with me. This changes something. Something else you might find, you're simply more open. Open in this case means that self-protection is low enough to allow for vulnerability. So for me, if there's two things this path is, it's honesty and vulnerability. We can allow what is hard in life to touch us and we don't need to push it away. Doing so is evidence of one of the three types of tanha or craving. Joanna um, gave us a very clear overview of the different types of dukkha. There's also three types of craving. Craving for a sense pleasure, craving for what is often translated as becoming, wanting to be something or someone else. And craving for non-becoming. So, it's the, that's the aversive side, moving away from something, not wanting to be who or what you are. So in this way, my own explanation of openness, um, in this way we understand vulnerability as an expression of emotional maturity and an increasingly accurate understanding of the self. So there's a very distinct Buddhist overlay here. Open for me has something to do with intelligence. And this is an intelligence that we all have the ability to cultivate. I don't care about test scores, I don't care about IQs, I don't care about social ranking, job position, and anything else that we measure each other by. Intelligence is understood as a willingness and capacity to learn rather than already having learned. Openness, is when intelligence is understood as a willingness to learn rather than already having learned.
One more. You might find yourself being able to take greater accountability. This is going to be important in relationships, at home, in any kind of community environment, any kind of change work. We can do this again because we are less attached to others seeing us in a particular way. We let them see us as we are. And in turn, we more easily assume responsibility when we have been unskillful. Now there's something particularly important for me here. With regard to um, relationship. We don't have to downplay our blind spots and discredit others' awareness to make us feel better. So this is, has a connection to the, my definition of intelligence. We don't have to downplay our blind spots. We can be proud that we've seen them, actually, or that someone else has pointed them out. And we don't have to discredit others' awareness to make us feel better. It just means we're willing to sit with the feedback. We don't project that back onto others. The result is that we can have closer and more long-lasting relationship because there's a greater presence of trust. So what do we learn through these kinds of changes? I would put these in the category of relative insight. Again, they don't show up in the suttas. But I want to map them just briefly against two important core teachings. We do begin to see, we do begin to understand who we are by seeing who and what we are not. This is definitely insight into anatta in Pali, often translated as not-self. My understanding right now is that Buddhist practice offers insight through a process of elimination. I'm not my fear. I'm not my worry. I'm not my self-doubt. I'm not my inability to act. I'm not my dysregulated emotions. I'm not my self-protection. I'm not my unskillful habits. until eventually it appears that we are not anything in particular outside of these changing states. If anything at all, what we might call a self is perhaps more like the spacious awareness that sees this changing phenomena, that are uncontrollable in the conventional sense, yet made tolerable in the absence of reactivity, denial, and repression. And so here's the, the grand teaching that everyone in their talks so far has substantiated. 
we learn that the present moment is not something to be avoided. And the different parts of ourselves are not to be hidden away because it doesn't work when we do that. We see clearly that all our strategies to avoid what is presenting itself in the present moment is the creation of dukkha, suffering, period. Number two, the Four Noble Truths, which many of you are familiar with, are no longer philosophy. This is not the first chapter of the book that gets us to read the second chapter, which eventually gets us to go on a meditation retreat. And even beyond tasks to be accomplished, as Stephen Batchelor refers to them, to try to, he does this to try to pull them out of dogma so they're not truths to be believed in because Vinny said that they're true, they're tasks. So he's pointing at the experiential. But beyond that, they are liberating insights and more, even more importantly, skills to possess. The first noble skill we become honest about the difficulties in our lives. The second noble skill, we are aware of their cause. Sometimes, we can't always be aware of their cause. On this, particularly with regard to this relative level that I'm, my list. Third noble skill, we become optimistic about their alleviation. This is the relaxation I was talking about on Monday night. We begin to relax. And the fourth noble skill, we are skilled in their removal. But no big trick, no big fancy anything. Just the being with, just the honesty, just the acceptance changes something. And I'll close tonight also with a short poem. Think in ways you've never thought before. If the phone rings, think of it as carrying a message larger than anything you've ever heard. Vaster than a hundred lines of Yeats. Think that someone may bring a bear to your door. Maybe wounded and deranged. Or think that a moose has risen out of the lake and he's carrying on his antlers a child of your own whom you've never seen. When someone knocks on the door, think that he's about to give you something large. 
tell you you're forgiven or that it's not necessary to work all the time or that it's been decided that if you lie down, no one will die. Mm 